The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. Equity for All is the mission for KKR's Pete Stavros, who wants to extend stock grants from the C-suite to entire workforces and generate at least $100 billion of wealth for low and moderate income households in a decade. Listen to my chat with Pete to hear how he plans on achieving his ambitious goal. Welcome to The Exchange, a conversation with people of interest to business and financial professionals around the world. I'm Jeff Goldfarb, the Asia-Pacific editor for Reuters Breaking Views, which is the global financial commentary arm of Reuters News. I'm coming to you from Melbourne, Australia. For this week's episode, I caught up with Pete Stavros, who is the co-head of America's private equity for buyout giant KKR in New York. In his spare time, Pete is leading a movement on broad-based employee ownership. He started a nonprofit organization called Ownership Works to help companies around the world design and implement programs to get stock into the hands of all their workers. It's already happening at places like Ingersoll Rand, Harley Davidson, and others. The stated mission of Ownership Works is to generate at least $20 billion of wealth for low and moderate income households and people of color by 2030. Pete reckons the number should be more like $100 billion. In my chat with Pete, he candidly discusses the resistance and the hurdles to achieving the goal. He also talks through some eye-opening case studies and how his own personal background led him to champion this particular cause. Give a listen. Pete, thank you so much for joining us today on The Exchange. Just figure we'll jump right into this. You've gone on this mission, and I guess it's fair to call it a mission, can you tell us a little bit about, I mean, you have, a, a, as far as I can tell, you have a pretty busy day job uh, trying to find deals for uh, for KKR. What what inspired you to to, to go on this mission of, of sort of getting equity distributed to, um, to the masses? Well, the original inspiration came from my father, who was an hourly construction worker in the suburbs of Chicago. You know, for 45 years, he operated a road grader. And... What my da- my dad actually loved his job. He didn't begrudge being a construction worker. The two things he did not love were the inability to generate wealth on an hourly wage, you know, making fifteen dollars an hour or, or whatever it was. And then the second thing was the lack of alignment with his employer. Because if the only the ex- if you are exclusively pl- paid an hourly wage and you have no other incentive, you have kind of the ultimate misalignment with your employer because you want more hours, you want overtime hours, and your employer wants just the opposite. So my dad always wanted profit sharing in his union. He was a member of Local 150 in Chicago, uh, the building trade. And that was that was kind of his, um, that was his dream, was to have more alignment and profit sharing in, in the union. It, it, unfortunately, never happened, but that was kind of the original inspiration f- for me. And then when I entered the workforce and I almost by happenstance ended up in in an investing job. The first thing that I worked on was a a, a funds flow transaction for the for the sale of a company. So 25 years ago when when you'd sell a company, there was a very mechanical way the proceeds of the sale would be distributed and it was done by phone. And so the job I had was all day I was confirming wire transfers and this company had pretty broad ownership. Uh, it was called Clark Schwabel. And when it was sold, I was doing the funds flow and I was talking to all of these folks who had meaningful wires hitting their accounts. And what was interesting was the deeper into the organization you went, when the dollars were actually smaller, 
people were more emotional, more excited, more, you know, discussing how life changing it was for them. And I was just, you know, a kid doing the funds flow. But that was a really impactful moment for me. And of course, reminded me of what my dad had always kind of dreamed of. And then the very next thing I worked on was an ESOP called Gleason Corporation. And an ESOP is a very technical tax structure used to distribute ownership, you know, broadly. It was quite common in, in private equity in the 70s and, and 80s, and then for all sorts of reasons became a little bit less common or a lot less common today. I was fascinated by that. I went to business school, studied that intently, and then thought a lot about how to share ownership broadly in non-ESOP constructs that didn't have some of the structural challenges of, of an ESOP. And so when I got into a leadership role at KKR, now we're, you know, this is now 12 years ago, running the industrials investing vertical, we started experimenting with broad-based ownership outside of ESOP structures. And, you know, we had really, really good results. And then we expanded it over time to include other verticals. And now it's really how we do business across the U.S. when we have control of an investment. And now we're bringing it to Europe. And, and um, so it, it really started... You know, with me as, as as a kid, seeing my father, and then I, you know, as often happens, luck puts you in certain situations and you have different experiences and it just kind of built on itself. And it's been a growing passion of mine throughout my career. That's really interesting. So you've had this sort of like, what started out as, I guess, something that was talked about around the dinner table into this serendipitous job as a kid. And then, you know, it all kind of sinks into your memory bank and you get there. I mean, it, it's a great story, and it's sort of like it, it almost, as you say, it's almost like it was like a path that was laid out for you. But of course, of course, as great a story as that is, like companies are not interested in necessarily like the great emotional story that you have. They're interested in cost benefit analyses. No one knows that better than you. Talk me through a little bit of what makes you know. You, you mentioned the alignment of interest that your father was interested, you know, was really interested in. But what what else? Why is this so important, I guess? Well, I, you know, as I often say, there's a there's a pretty strong two-handed argument for this. If you're that hardcore capitalist who's all about cost benefit and you're just looking at the bottom line or the returns for shareholders, this is a great idea that you're going to be excited about. And if you're a very progressive, you know, worker-oriented, not as concerned about the shareholder, you know, this is a great idea you're going to be excited about. So I really do think this is one of these rare situations. I know win-win is is way overused and, and very, very infrequently actually exists. This program, with the right implementation and with the right amount of effort, can be just that. You really can create outcomes where workers are better off and are and are better off, by the way, without risking wages or benefits or their own capital, because this is as we could structure it a free benefit. And it can result in higher levels of productivity, customer satisfaction, you know, growth um, as a result of lower employee turnover and higher levels of employee engagement. And, and as, I, as I said, if the whole program is really well implemented and it's so much more than ownership, you know, this is some of the lessons we've learned over 12 years of doing this. If it's just about stock, and all you're doing is handing out stock. First of all, the initial reaction from folks is often like, I don't understand it. I don't believe it. This is never going to pay out the way you're saying it could, even though you're not guaranteeing me it's going to pay out. I just I don't believe it. But when it is supplemented with 
financial education, financial literacy training, information sharing, opening up the business plan, delegating certain decision-making rights to workers, and, and a really a robust employee engagement effort, then we've found you really can create an ownership culture and not only benefit the workers, but really inflect you know, the culture of the business and the performance. Let's talk a little bit about the nuts and bolts of it, I think, because it's really important because my per- I personally started getting interested in this a couple of years ago, as I as I shared with you earlier, that there was a supermarket chain here in Australia where I'm based. You know, they decided to give out some equity to like 100,000, you know, supermarket employees. And, you know, it was, a, it, was a, it was a tiny little amount of stock. It was a reward for their staff having endured the bushfires down here, COVID. You know, they're on the front lines of all of that. And it was like a, a nice little kind of, hey, here's a few hundred shares in the company. And, um, and that piqued my interest. I did a little bit of research on it. But you have structured yours. What you're advocating, what you're trying to push, is something far more robust than than that. And talk us, talk me through the, you know, what what exactly the expectations are for 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 your organization to to get involved with with trying to advance this. Well, first, in terms of the scale of what we're talking about, and we don't have all the answers. Our our belief is that those small grants don't move the needle either for the worker or for the company. We're really focused on situations where we can deploy more meaningful capital on behalf of workers, show people an opportunity to earn at least six months of their annual income in stock, ideally, you know, 12 months plus. Um, Again, at no cost to them, not trading wages or benefits. And then leveraging that into employee engagement. And, and a more robust corporate culture. So, you know, day one, it's that, hey, everyone's an owner and you're going to participate. Here's the business plan. If we can deliver the plan, everyone here can earn, as an example, 12 months of, of your income or six months of your, of your annual income or whatever the, the number is. And if we do better, it could be more, maybe a whole lot more. Um, but if we don't perform, it's not a guarantee. It's, it's equity. It's, it's, it's uncertain. Um, and then it's all about those quarterly owner meetings. The business plan you just talked about, how do you break down, let's say the goal is scrap production. How do you break down a scrap production goal by facility, by shift, by line, and then share information back to folks so they can see how they're doing? You know, One of the things academic researchers uh, believe is the number one reason people are not engaged on the job is they don't know how they're doing. So sometimes just that simple effort to share information and share feedback can be quite meaningful uh, is what some of our CEOs have found. So, and again, it's, it's the whole package of things over time. These are multi, multi-year journeys. This is not, hey, you do a few things, share some stock and great things happen. This is grinding away at changing a culture over many years. I mean, you, you uh, I mean, you touched on this interesting thing, which is that I mean, you know, you mentioned the win-win. It, it all sounds. I mean, it, it all. I mean, if you're if, if you're giving people equity in the company and they're not taking away from their wages, and you're not taking, you know, it really is trending to trying to create this new culture. It, it does beg the question, like, why has this taken? Why is why does it need Pete Stavros on a mission to make this happen? We know. There is no CEO or board in the world that doesn't understand or doesn't want equity participation, equity options, RSUs. They fully they want it in their pay packages. 
why is it so hard for them to understand that everyone should want that? Right. Well, start with um, take take a company that we we owned uh, used to be called Gardner Denver. It's now known as Ingersoll Rand. So when we it was a public company when we bought the business, there were eighty six employees who had ownership in the whole company, many thousands of employees. Transitioning from that to what it was at the end, uh, this is nine years later, which was 16,000 employees, all with meaningful ownership spread across 80 countries. That is difficult to implement. So one of the things that we've been experimenting with over you know, a number of years is just how do you do that from a legal tax accounting share plan administration compliance how do you just make all that work in all these jurisdictions it's there's uh, quite a bit to it and then that second part of the equation of how do you get people to understand and value it because if you talk to a ceo today the number one reaction you would get is oh geez hourly employees and i don't mean this in a disrespectful way they're just never going to understand or value the equity or hourly, and you'll find um, on, I'm sure we'll talk about this on our nonprofits website, Ownership Works, you'll see a page called Common Objections and Rebuttals, which I, I wrote some time ago, because we heard the same things over and over. Hourly workers will never understand it, they won't value it. Hourly workers don't move the needle, why would you give them equity? Hourly workers just want cash, they don't even want equity. So I think there's some deeply held beliefs in corporate America and in the corporate world you know, globally about hourly workers, about who moves the needle. And then there really are structural barriers to just making this happen. It's quite complicated um, to just put it into effect and to communicate it, get people to understand it, you know, what education has to go along with that. It is a different way. It's a really different way of operating. I mean, it's interesting because I, I like, um, and, and the website does have a really, a lot of great information. I encourage people to, Go check it out because, um, but one of the, you know, in your FAQs, you have, I love that you say uh, one of them is how much work is involved in adopting a shared ownership program. And you're a little bit, I don't know if it's euphemistic or what are you sort of, you know, it says it requires an investment of time and resources. And you've, I mean, you've kind of explained a little bit more of that it is quite, quite a heavy level. What, I mean, but, but every HR program, every program at a company requires that, right? I mean, and com companies are consistently, is there something, some greater degree of difficulty for this than any other implementation of, of a scheme? Is it or what do companies really have to, I guess, think of where where is the big investment going to come from? Not necessarily financially, but I mean, what part of the business is going to really be taxed on this? I think it's a number of different things. It, it is that structuring and implementation part there that that's not a small lift just administering that program go back to the Ingersoll Rand example 16,000 people in 80 countries all who have a, a meaningful chunk of ownership that that is complicated to administer um so that that's a heavy lift the real heavy lift though is trying to turn that into culture so how much time is the leadership team willing to invest to get folks to understand, first of all, what what is equity? Some have never owned stock at all, ever. So what, what are we talking about? What are the key metrics that the leadership team is tracking 
to make sure that equity value creation is on the right path. You know, how do you then disaggregate those big picture goals into something that is relevant to individual folks in the company and what they do every day? Let me give you an example just to bring this to life. So, and I'll stay with Ingersoll Rand for a second. So Ingersoll Rand had a huge opportunity to reduce what's known as its networking capital investment. So this is cash tied up in inventory and in accounts receivable for the most part. So cash that had not been collected from customers. So they, they delivered product, the bill was outstanding, had not gotten the cash in, inventory lying around in plants. And that could be in raw material, finished goods, work in process. This was a huge opportunity. So the, the networking capital as a percentage of revenue for Ingersoll Rand at the time was something like 32, 33%. And a more typical manufacturer would be something like 20%. So the old way of doing business would be CEO says, we're going to drive down inventory, handful of people at the top, try and push it. Probably, you know, they do a Pareto analysis on where the big opportunities are, the old 80-20. They probably hit a couple of the big ones and they make some improvement. The way that the Ingersoll Rand leadership team and we went at this was, let's do a train-the-trainer approach where we're going to establish some master trainers around networking capital in the company. They are then going to train another layer of people beneath them, and then they will train one final layer. And then that layer will, will basically educate 6,000 people on how to do this. And the way the math works is though you don't need many steps in that training matrix to be able to reach thousands of people. So you, you start with, okay, accounts receivable. How many people in our organization are touching, you know, account either accounts receivable, accounts payable, or inventory, most of the organization? And then accounts receivable to stay with that example, there was some training that was done. Um, first of all, to just get out of our system, you know, where there was old accounts receivable outstanding, how to accelerate those collections, how to improve our processes around this. And then you would have coming out of that training, someone go off, take their own initiative and the training. And there was one woman I remember in our uh, Redditch UK site who went off and collected a million pounds of, of something like five-year-old accounts receivable, which people would have said is impossible. No one's going to pay you after five years. It's just not possible. She off, went off and made it happen. And then the leadership team basically created a ceremony. She won an award. We videotaped that and we blasted all around the universe, all of our you know locations. Hey, what if everyone did operate it this way? And then the same thing with inventory. And, and all along the way, the leadership team is explaining to people, you know, the, the uh, accounts payable, which we want to pay more slowly. That's like paying your bills. The receivables like your paycheck and inventory is what you have in, in the... Um, refrigerator. You don't want to overbuy your, your, your inventory in your refrigerator because stuff's going to go bad. So it was a combination of this train the trainer approach, some simplifying of key terms and things we were going to go, go chase, and then some real hands-on training and then unleashing people to go to go do it. To just get to the final outcome, we saved or, or were freed up, I think it was a quarter of, of a billion dollars of cash through that program. And I think it was in like 18 months. And then, you know, everyone's an owner. Everyone participates in the upside. We then can go reinvest that cash and further grow the business. And it just starts, the flywheel starts to turn. It's amazing. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a great story. And I see why you hold it up as an example. 
I mean, one question I did want to have, I mean, because you talked about your your roots, your father's, you know, um, experience as a as an hourly worker. Do you encounter? I mean, you're, you're trying to think of how to frame this. Do you, as a messenger on this from private equity, which is sort of like the you know the bastion of capital, not labor necessarily in this in society. And private equity, as you well know, has not exactly had a great reputation among the working masses. Um, there is there's a history of you know thinking that that private equity is about chopping out costs, which means getting rid of a lot of workers. Like how how are how are you positioned as a messenger in this? What's that experience been like? I know you've got some labor unions, you know, um, that you're working with on this, but talk about that because private equity doesn't seem like the natural champion of the worker. Um, to a lot of people. Yeah. Well, the first time I, I ever talked about this work, so we started this in around 2010, 2011. I do think I and we were scared to talk about it until we had data and outcomes. I think the first time I ever talked about it publicly might have been 2016 or something like that. I think we did a Bloomberg interview after we'd had some exits and some wins and started to get some data on what it meant for workers. The first time I ever talked about it to a client, meaning a pension fund, I won't name the, the name of the pension fund, but I presented this and the CIO of the pension fund basically delivered a message along the lines of what you were suggesting, which is, hey, look, you guys are great. We need private equity. You guys deliver great returns. But Pete, don't, don't come in here trying to convince me, you know, you're a friend of the worker and you guys are really focused on employee engagement and turnover and it's just a little, it's a little rich. And so we had this debate and he just was not open to the message for some of the reasons you noted, some of the stories about the industry and you guys are hardcore capitalists and I, you know, it's a little bit hard to believe. So then we were walking to the, he was kind enough to walk, walk me out. We were, we were uh, walking towards the elevator and he said, how did you ever get started on this? And I said, actually, it came from my dad. I started talking about my dad as a construction worker and his experiences. And I'll never forget, he stopped me in the hall, put his hand on my shoulder. He's like, geez, Pete, if you would have started with that, I would have <laughs> been open to the message, you know, because you walk in, you know, some private equity guy from KKR, it's a little bit hard to engage in this kind of a discussion. If you start with, I come from this background and now I'm in a position of maybe being able to try and influence some of the way things work and maybe we can move things a little bit towards the direction my dad had always dreamed of. He said I would have it would have been a massively different discussion. So do me a favor, if you ever talk about this again, first thing you should tell people is about your personal background, which is when I started trying to talk more publicly about this, I, I was a little bit more open about you know, why this was a, a passion uh, of mine. Interesting, really interesting. Uh, you talked about the Ingersoll Rand example. I want to talk about a more, even more recent one. Um, you know, you guys have recently sold uh, this, I guess, garage door maker, uh, CHI to Nucor. And it was a huge return for KKR, but but you implemented this program there. Tell, tell me about Tell me about that experience. So we invested in the business in 2015 
at the outset made it clear everyone was going to be an owner in the business would participate in the upside. We had a really clear plan of how we thought the business could create value. And it related to everything from how we bought steel to productivity in the factory to reducing inventories to logistics and distribution, how we sell our products, et cetera. There was we were really excited about what could be done with the business. It was already a really good company. We thought with the right incentives and leadership, it could be, you know, an incredible company. And so we rolled that out in 2015. We conservatively told people we thought everyone could make six months of, of their income if we deliver on our plan and maybe much more if we really exceed our plan. But of course, not a guarantee. If we don't hit our plan, yeah, there's no guarantee that that the equity will pay out. Over seven years, the leadership team did all the hard work I've been talking about around employee engagement. And we worked with um, Operation Hope on financial literacy training, uh, financial education, sharing information. One of my one of our early examples of delegating decision. Making rights, the example that we've uh, given, and there were other uh, examples of this, but putting aside a million dollars of capital expenditures per year for the workforce to invest in whichever way they thought was going to most increase the quality of the work environment. And that over years, really, the cumulative effect of that had a massive impact on the workplace. So the first year they wanted air conditioning in the plant. Most factories in the US are not air conditioned. This one's in central Illinois, gets to be mid to high 90s, some really rough days in the summer, which was our busy season. Inside that plant, an unconditioned space, you're talking about 105 degrees plus. People get exhausted, they get hurt, quality suffers, and they said, hey, air conditioning would go a long way to making us happier. So that was the first thing. Then they wanted an on-site cafeteria built with healthier food options because there weren't many food options in the area. Then they wanted new break rooms. So on breaks, there was no place to congregate. So we built four break rooms. Next year, they wanted an on-site health clinic, and so on and so on. And, and then we would have family days where they could bring their families in and show off these investments, which were their ideas. So all of the many efforts the leadership team put forth over a seven-year period led to some dramatic results. And the profitability, the key profitability metric in the business that, that we and many investors in our space track went from something like 20% to something like 35% by the time we exited and was run rating more like 40%. So dramatic, dramatic productivity gains, huge growth in the business. You know, the revenue of the business went up 120% to the productivity point, despite revenue going up 120%, scrap only grew, I think it was 7%. So lots of gains around quality, the way we made things. Networking capital declined massively, I think it was 14, 15%. And we got it down at one point, I think it was almost zero. So then you fast forward to the, the outcome for workers. We paid four dividends on the stock over time. An average factory worker or worker in the warehouse, cumulatively over those four dividends earned about $9,000. And then at the exit, those same colleagues, depending on how long they had been at the organization and how senior they were, earned for someone who was brand new, so joined just this year in 2022. So you're talking about maybe they were only there a month. Uh, at most, they were there five months. That 
those colleagues earned, you know, $20,000 if they joined last year in 2021, $40,000 if they joined in 2020, $70,000, $75,000, and on and on and on. And you ended up having, you know, people making upwards of almost a million dollars in some cases who had been there, you know, a very long time. So the outcome was epic uh, for workers. It was epic for investors. Our investors made 10 times their money. Best deal that we had done in a control US buyout in, in 30 some years, and it was making garage doors. I mean, this was not some high flying software company. Is there a danger? I mean, obviously it's a great outcome for those employees. It's obviously a great outcome for KKR and its limited partners. But is there a danger in this being your case study in the sense that if this is the best investment that KKR has done in 30, 40 years, this is not a typical outcome in, and I know you, 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 you've said it a couple of times already that you're very careful to say, look, we don't, you know, it all depends on the outcome. We don't promise you anything, but this becomes sort of a, if this gets out, it's sort of, is there a danger that this becomes like the expectation, I guess, in a way? Yeah. Now we do have many other exits. Um, that were that were great, but not this great. Capital Safety, Capsigel, Ingersoll, Rand, Gardner, Denver, et cetera. So this one has really grabbed people's attention because it was such an incredible outcome for, for everyone. I do think it enhances the need for us to be really precise in our communication, be really careful, make sure we're not overpromising. Because I, I agree, you, you know, you, you could set people up for an unrealistic expectation and we just need to be careful with how we communicate. Have you had disappointing outcomes and how, how do companies manage that? You know, people have said, hey, wait a minute, I thought I was gonna make a lot of money. Then you have to kind of explain, well, this is how, are there, are there examples of that? And do you help coach people through that, that process? Yeah, and because we have these quarterly owner meetings, I mean, people know along the way how it's going. So it's not like we exit a business and people are like, okay, you know, this is gonna be great. I mean, they would know how we're doing. But absolutely, we've rolled this out at businesses that were cyclical two months before COVID hit. And, you know, as, I, as I've mentioned a few times, folks are not making out-of-pocket investments. They're not giving up wages or benefits or anything like that. So there's no downside. But you could look at it and say, God, that's got to be a bummer. You know, you roll out the stock and then COVID hits and they're sitting there saying, when's this? stock can be worth anything. We always revert to, well, what do you do for this, the leadership team? And it's got to be the same. Our core philosophy is we're all in this together. So whatever you do with the leadership team's bummed out too. So what do people do for the leaders of the company? They reprice their options. They give them more options at a lower strike price. Our philosophy is, well, then you got to do the same thing for the workforce. So that's how we manage it. Whatever you need to do to make sure that leadership team remains excited, you've got to do for the whole workforce. And that may mean people have options that are struck at a fraction of, of our buy-in price. And that would be in a situation where we're, you know, something bad happened like COVID and we're fighting to make sure we return our investors capital without impairment. And that may be a great outcome. You know, if you bought, I don't know, if you bought an aerospace company two months before COVID, you're going to be, you know, that's going to be a dogfight, um, and you've How got to get everyone motivated. I think you you launched this group what about a year ago. You're you're in the middle of COVID. 
now you're now you're facing a situation where the market's obviously crashing um, and in some trouble. You've got inflation rolling out. How do I mean? Is anyone interested in talking about this with you right now? I mean, our our companies, our employees. Does do the conditions matter in terms of trying to roll out programs like these? Well, in some respects, you know, more reasonable valuation environment is going to be better for this. So you're giving people equity grants at a at a better valuation level, a better time in the cycle, as opposed to unrealistically high valuations that then need to get even higher for people to to make a, a decent return. So I think a normalization of the valuation environment, I think it'd be helpful. And I again go back to our CEOs still interested in equity. You better believe it. That's all they want. They they want to bet on themselves. They want to bet on their company, and they'll forego. Again, we don't ask workers to, to do this, factory workers or anything like that. But CEOs will often say, "Oh, geez, I'll take a nominal salary. Just give me more equity because I, I know that's where the upside is." So CEOs still think it's it, it's a really interesting bet in, in their company, and so we'd like to create that same opportunity for the workforce. Do you um do you have a goal or target on this? Like in other words, do you hope in ten years half the S and P five hundred has this kind of, or do you have certain companies that you think would make a big difference? Like if you could convince a Walmart to do this, would that create a ripple effect? I mean, have, talk to me about what your what what are your goals or targets on this? I think we're yeah, we're realistic. We we don't expect in five or ten years half the S and P is going to have stock ownership or, or maybe even anything close to that. But we are looking at it bottoms up and saying, how many companies do we think we can influence? What's the average workforce of those companies? What kind of wealth do we think we can create for the workers in those companies? And what does it all roll up to? And so our goal, which I think we will easily surpass, but I was overruled by others to, to try and have a more modest initial goal. Our, our initial goal is 20 billion of wealth for working families over a decade. I think we will, I'd be disappointed if it's not 100 billion. And when you look at the lack of wealth in the bottom half of the country economically, that's transformational. That's a huge amount of money relative to what we have today. It's not gonna solve our problems. I'm not sitting here saying we're gonna solve wealth inequality or anything like that. Our goal is to get working families access to an ownership opportunity and a key wealth creation tool to help them get ahead. That's really what we're trying to do. And pair that with financial literacy training. This example of the garage door business you, you referenced a minute ago, at exit, we are prepaying through Goldman Sachs, and they're an incredible partner of ours on this, 12 months of free financial one-on-one -on -one personal coaching for every, every worker at the company. We're prepaying everyone's tax preparation services with Ernst & Young. Again, they're doing incredible um, work there and deeply discounting their services to, to help propel this movement forward. So that that's the goal is to really, I would say, we're looking to create more like 100 billion of, of wealth and have people prepared for those types of outcomes so that first thing they do is get out of debt and they're paying off their debt in the correct order and they're getting their credit scores up and you know, not rushing out to spend it. Pete, I think that's a great place to leave it. Thanks so much for talking me through it. And uh, we'll check in with you and see how, you, how you're doing at some point on your, uh, your $100 billion goal. Awesome. Thanks for having me.
Thanks a lot. Appreciate it. Thanks again to Pete Stavros for his time. To learn more about his initiative, check out ownershipworks.org. Thanks to all of you for tuning in. This podcast was produced by Katrina Hamlin in Hong Kong and Sharon Lamb in Toronto. You can find more episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. Also, please give a listen to our sister podcast, The Views Room, and find us on breakingviews.com and on Twitter, where our handle is at breakingviews. And join us again soon for another episode of The Exchange.